Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your host and dean of the Marine Corps War College, Becky Johnson. Today we're discussing the role of case studies in professional military education. My guest today is Dr. Bill Morgan. Dr. Morgan is professor and director of diplomacy and statecraft at Marine Corps War College in Quantico, Virginia. He joined McWar in 2010 after retiring from the Department of State, where he spent 31 years in the Foreign Service. During this time, Dr. Morgan spent 20 years abroad in various foreign assignments, including South Africa, Venezuela, Japan, and Hungary. From 2001 to 2003, he was the first State Department chair at McWar, running the Regional Studies Program and receiving the University's Rose Award for Teaching Excellence in 2003. Dr. Morgan received a PhD in history from the Claremont Graduate University in 1979, specializing in diplomatic history and East Asian studies. From 1969 to 1972, he served on active duty in the Marine Corps and in the Marine Reserves until 79. He is the author of Pacific Gibraltar, U.S.-Japan Rivalry over the Annexation of Hawaii, 1885 to 1898. His most recent publication, A Case Can Be Made, The Value of Historical Case Studies in Contemporary Policy Analysis, was published in the summer edition of Marine Corps History. Dr. Morgan, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Before we start our discussion of case studies, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at the War College? Well, as the course director, one of well, five, I guess, that uh, work, work for you as dean, uh, I'm kind of like the, the chief organizer of the portion of our curriculum called Diplomacy and Statecraft. Because we are a war college, a major portion of our curriculum is military history and strategy, joint war fighting, and military leadership. Our diplomacy and statecraft curriculum is similarly focused on the intersection of diplomacy and military force, the causes of war, war termination, the identification of national interests worth defending, and so forth. So the diplomacy and statecraft course is not really sort of diplomacy per se and how diplomats talk to diplomats. It's solidly grounded in the realm of national security and security challenges. Um, and then as part of it, especially in the second half of the year, we do look at some what we call country studies. Uh, some of them are allied countries such as NATO or Japan, South Korea, with whom we have formal military agreements. Uh, sometimes it's friendly countries, not formal allies but countries like Mexico, perhaps. And then we do look at countries with whom we have disputes, North Korea, Iran, and so forth. Of our so-called country studies, our main focus, really, the emphasis is on China, Northeast Asia, and Russia and Eurasia. So it's, again, the national security element here is uh, really paramount. Lastly, I might say that, well, you and I and other faculty here at the Marine Corps University teach many of these courses. We also uh, get outsiders to come in and talk, and these are largely academic uh, academics from the Washington area, think tank researchers, and government officials, and there's a rich pool of those in the Washington area. So I'm kind of like the one who keeps the circus uh, running and makes sure that the education that we provide here is at the high level that is appropriate for the senior school of the Marine Corps. Excellent, thanks. I think you're being modest, though. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so your article is about the educational value of case studies. Right. What makes a case study beneficial as a teaching tool? Well, I think 
first of all, case studies, uh, especially one that's well chosen, um, is interesting to the students because it's a story about people, really. Uh, but overall, case studies, I think, enhance critical thinking and analysis, and that's what we're really after. Uh, students learn through case studies to ask questions to get the most relevant data, to learn to analyze that data, and then to formulate options or policy recommendations to advance national interests. And so they look at old examples to take lessons and takeaways from them to apply to current uh, crises. So I think that really, uh, uh, you know, kind of wor works well, case studies work well. That's the real world of a policymaker. Um, you know, and a lot of our students are in the area where they're going to move into that realm to become senior advisors to policymakers and maybe even generals and policymakers and ambassadors and so forth. And there, there will come a time at that level where somebody's going to march into their office with a great big problem and a lot of uncertain, murky information, and they're going to dump it on their desk and say, sort it out, I need options and policy, uh, policy options, policy recommendations. So what I think case studies do is let the students practice that here and learn to how to parse that data and come up with realistic options. So that's what I think the value of case studies is. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the more senior our students get, nobody's bringing them the easy problems mm -hmm. because folks more junior to them would have solved them and, and never never bothered right. them with the, the thorny issues anyway. So giving the students the opportunity to really grapple with cases or questions, challenges that don't have an mm -hmm. obvious answer, that is an important skill. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned case studies that are well chosen. Mm -hmm. What makes some cases more valuable than others for our students? Well, the, the short answer is the best case studies, the ones we try to select, have more takeaways and richer, more relevant lessons. I mean, that's kind of the short answer. Uh, so we use case studies as instruments to hone student skills um, to deal with current security and foreign policy issues. Some cases are just better uh, vehicles than others, more takeaways. The other is, if you look at which kind of the two main types of cases we use, one, case studies often, they fall into kind of two major areas. There's what's called decision-forcing cases, and what there, the students are put in the role of a decision-maker at the cusp of a decision. And so they only are allowed to know in the case studies all the information that that person had when they made the decision in the case in question. And that's a useful um, case study, but it's particularly good at honing decision-making and then having people weigh what they did know to parse that correctly. I prefer the second type of case study, which is called retrospective cases. And what that means basically is you look at the whole case after the decision and the consequences with the benefit of hindsight. So you're not really role-playing as a decision-maker knowing what that person knows. You're an outsider examining the whole thing. But you are, in a way, you can put yourself, say, in the, in the, uh, in the position of a policymaker and say, if I was John F. Kennedy when we discovered Mrs. in Cuba, what would I do? What did I know? What could I have known? And then with benefit of hindsight, you could... You get an idea of what uh, K-12 
Kennedy might have asked for by way of information that he didn't even know existed in the system. And overall, you, you can think through the second and third order consequences from that decision with the benefit of hindsight. Um, so I like the second kind of case, retrospective case, is better because I think you can draw more lessons out from it that you can apply to a current uh, case. You learn how to ask the right questions and investigate the right data. Um, so it's basically those kinds of cases better stretch students' analytical skills, uh, and it challenges them more, I think. So that's what I like. How do you help students prepare to engage cases? Well, the big thing is I want them to come to class. Um, and we do, you know, we're a graduate school, so we do what we say Socratic seminars, right? And so what I don't want them to do is come to class having, quote, done the reading, and then they sit there and I ask the Socratic question, what was going through Khrushchev's mind when he decided to add nuclear weapons to the conventional arms package for Cuba in May of 1962? I don't want them to start thinking about that in my seminar. I want them to have thought about that before and ask themselves a lot of other questions about that data that they've read and so that they've come to a lot of judgments and conclusions and weighed evidence before class, and then we can build on that and do an even higher level Socratic discussion in the seminar itself. So that's what I want them to do. So then we have to give them the right kind of reading. Then we have to kind of teach them how to ask the right questions. A lot of that can be not just telling them how to do it, but modeling the behavior. So maybe in the first couple of seminars in a year, I will give them what to them seems like a very long list of the questions that I might ask, right? And say, get used to asking all these kinds of questions about people and events that maybe haven't occurred to you with casual thought. If you really bore into it, you can come up with those questions. And then, so we build slow, I model the questions. Then I say, you need to do them, bring a list to class and they turn them in at the end of class, and then I review those and give feedback so that we, we slowly ramp up the demands on the student over the first three, four, five seminars. And by the end of that time, they're getting a lot better about doing it. So, you know, in the educational world, they call that scaffolding. You, you put props in so the students don't have to do the entire new task all at once, but you slowly get them there and you remove the props along the way. Then in the end, they can jump out of the nest and fly. Can you walk us through one of the cases you teach? Well, sure, I can. Um, in that article you mentioned uh, that's in the recent uh, issue of Marine Corps history, uh, I look hard at the Japanese surrender in 1945, uh, also a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I examined how we use those two case studies in particular early in the year. Um, regarding the surrender, uh, it occurred August 14, 1945, after the August 6th Hiroshima bombing, the August 9th Nagasaki bombing, and the August 9th Soviet entry into the Pacific War with the invasion of Manchuria. So a lot of histories, understandably and rightfully, are concerned with, well, what caused the, the surrender? And was it the Hiroshima bombing alone? Was it the two bombings together? 
Was it the Soviet entry? Was it all three things? What was the combination and so on? And that's fair. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting um, subject, and we do look at that. But in the article, I really look at why, not why surrender occurred in the period between August 6th, the first bombing, and August 14th. It's why it took so long from when the Japanese had obviously lost the war. Um, now, what happened on the 14th was the emperor made a very rare and unusual intervention where he intervened in government policymaking, which normally as a figurehead, a decision was made and presented to him to bless, but he did not actually make decisions. In this case, he directed the decision because the, the government was at an impasse between hardliners that wanted to continue the war uh, and a so-called peace faction who had supported the war earlier but came to believe it could no longer be fought, that Japan could, did not have the capacity in August of 1945 to fight onward. So I look, go back to the fall of Saipan and Tinian in July of 1944, and that catastrophic issue uh, event caused Hideki Tojo to be forced from office uh, as the leader of Japan, and a new uh, head of the government came in, and the first murmurings about maybe this war needs to be negotiated and ended. That was a year before, more than a year before Japan ultimately surrendered. So my interest is why, when Japan had lost the war, really, could not have won it, uh, by July of 1944 did they fight on. And fight on they did, because they fought rather disastrous battles in the Philippines in late 1945, and again in the Philippines in early or in late 44, and then again in early 45 in the Philippines. Then in February and March of 1945 in Iwo Jima, fighting to the death basically there, and repeating that performance on a bigger scale in Okinawa in April through June 1945. And then meanwhile, with the strategic bombing going on and the fire bombings of Tokyo, I think if I remember the statistics right, of Japan's 60 largest cities, 40% of the land area was burned out. 10 million people were homeless. No oil tanker had reached Japan after March of 1945. I mean, they had lost the war, clearly, but on they fought. Why was that? Because the people that made the decisions, the militarists basically who dominated the government, were motivated not by a pragmatic, rational consideration of are we winning, are we exhausted, Do we ha should we give up? It was because of spirit, beliefs, values, traditions, Bushido from the samurai era, that they would rather die than give up the vision of the great Japan that they envisioned when they went to war. So I think that that kind of thinking and that kind of leadership is occurs, and we see it in, in other cases. And so when we're making policy today, we need to consider that pressure of a certain sort might not lead to a logical, rational reaction, but to something that's what we might think of as unpredictable and irrational. And so we need to think through how that might happen as well. So it kind of opens up the aperture, I think, 
to consider both a kind of rationality-based uh, reaction that the enemy might adversary might have, or an irrational one. And uh, and so I, in the end, I I connect that up to the North Korea case today. That's where my mind was going. You know, we we tend in in conversations, military planning, operational strategic planning, that we tend to make it very rational. It's a risk analysis, it's force on force. We assume that the stronger side or the side with a better kit is gonna win, but but it's important to remember that human factor and not just the the psychological biases or cognitive biases that we hold, but how that's actually gonna shape large scale war fighting, the the initiation of conflict, but certainly the termination of conflict. Thing and then I mentioned that in addition to the Japan case, we we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis and in as we were getting close to an actually a settlement in, in the Cuban crisis, October 26th was the date when Khrushchev and Kennedy sort of reached out to each other and beginning to negotiate the shape of the ultimate settlement. But Castro sensed that Khrushchev was turning from confrontation and bluster to maybe having to make concessions and avoid a nuclear war. And Castro summoned the Soviet ambassador, Alexiev, who was a fluent Spanish speaker, and drafted a letter to Khrushchev to try to stiffen his spine. And Castro thought this was all going to end up with an American invasion of Cuba and an occupation. He urged Khrushchev, use the nuclear weapons. And in 1992, you know, after the event, when uh, scholars from both Russia and the United States and Cuba met, and Castro appeared at the conference, and he stunned Robert McNamara, who was there, by saying, yes, I did write this, and I was prepared to bring the temple down around my head to avoid enduring an American occupation. I would rather die than do that. And this is right in the middle of, of a crucial turning point in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where what we would consider irrationality reared its head. Khrushchev ignored it, thank goodness. But, uh, you know, it, it's there, and we have, to, we have to be careful of it. I feel duty-bound to plug Fog of War, which is Errol Morris's um, superb documentary that yeah. he made with Robert McNamara. I initially was thinking about it when you were talking about the firebombing in Japan yeah, because right. there there is that just captivating scene where McNamara is talking about the burn ratios of different towns in Japan. And, of course, he was uh, the lieutenant colonel who was responsible for a lot yeah. of the planning involved in the firebombing. And, and Earl, Errol Morris transposes the sizes of those towns. I forget New York and Tokyo and Nagasaki is, is comparable to whatever U.S. town. Right. And so it was 50 some odd percent of New York City destroyed with fire, 98 percent of a city the size of Los Angeles destroyed by fire. I forget the actual yeah, ratios, yeah. but so powerful. And then, of course, that conversation, one of his first lessons uh, was that that recounting from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. So all of you, if you're listening to our podcast, if you haven't seen Fog of War, go watch it. It's an incredible it's about two hours long, a little less than two hours, but an incredibly valuable investment of your time. It is, and we use it in the curriculum for the very reasons you express. Great movie. Mm-hmm. So how does studying a historical case study prepare our students to confront current or future security challenges? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean that's the point of it, right, to prepare our students. And so there are senior officers and civilians moving from what we might call sort of tactical levels of which they have great expertise and experience 
squadron commanders, uh, battalion commanders, or maybe major section chiefs and embassies or significant intelligence community positions. But they're going into that level where you go beyond that and you're, you're dealing with policy and big use of military force, really grand strategy level. So what we want to do is pre prepare them for that. They may be on the joint staff, they may be ambassadors, advisors to big shots, or they become those big shots themselves. So I think the, the point of that article that I wrote, for instance, in Marine Corps history was to connect up the case studies with a current policy challenges, and the one I picked was North Korea. So I you know, got a few of these questions, for example, that I think case studies would help us ask of the North Korea problem. And for instance, recalling that the militarists in Japan would not surrender because they were motivated by traditions, beliefs, values, emotions, and so on, what does that tell us about Kim? Uh, is his behavior, like theirs was, likely to be heavily influenced by these so-called irrational factors? And if so, which, which factors might uh, they be? And therefore, we can better calibrate our policy toward him to get the result that we want if we can really think through what motivates him. Uh, can he act without regard, for instance, to the effect that his actions have on his domestic authority? Or can he, does he feel that he can never look weak? He always has to look strong and could never make a concession. Those questions come from a study of the Japanese surrender. Or um, as Castro had urged in the Cuban Missile Crisis, would Kim feel at some point that he would rather die and drag his nation over the brink to avoid what he might think would be a humiliating concession to the Americans? Um, does, do these case studies of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and the Japanese surrender and others allow us to ask the kinds of questions that inform our decision about whether our objectives are matched with our leverage, our persuasion, our inducements to compromise? How do we get what we want through some blend of uh, pressure, persuasion, and inducements? And how might each of those work, and how might we either entice a concession, persuade a concession, or force a concession, and best predict how it will all turn out? I mean, those are some of the, the kinds of questions, I think, that case studies give you practice at that then when you face North Korea or China or Russian activities in the Baltics, you can work your way through this analysis using the lessons from case studies to inform how you deal with today, with reality today, when that responsibility is on your shoulders and that problem is on your desks. Awesome. So where could our listeners go if they wanted to learn more about case studies? Well, the, you know, like so many things nowadays, you Google it. <laughs> but uh, if you Google truly uh, case studies or case teaching, uh, you'll get a lot of returns. But the two obvious ones uh, would be uh, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, which has you know, long done many case studies in international affairs, and the Harvard Business School does. The other good repository is your alma mater, Georgetown mm -hmm. University, uh, the school uh, or the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy there, 
maintains a huge case study of international affairs cases. And uh, you, can get, you can acquire them uh, from ISD at Georgetown. The, the other thing is ISD was associated at Georgetown with the publication of a book by Vicki Golich. Uh, it's a G-O-L-I-C-H is her last name, called The ABCs of Case Teaching, which is a very nice 120-page primer on how to apply the method. So I would, those are two, uh, two or three ways to start. Excellent. Last question. Mm-hmm. What are you reading right now that our students should know about? Uh, well, like a lot of us around here, a lot of our reading, uh, we try to relate it somehow to something we teach. So I've just read a wonderful book by uh, Lien Hang Nguyen, a Vietnamese-American, left Vietnam two months old after the fall of Saigon. Uh, and she's just written a wonderful book called Hanoi's War. And what this is is a study of North Vietnamese government policy making during the Vietnam War. And she describes the guy who became the, the general secretary and the, the most powerful figure in North Vietnam, Le Zuan, and his close friend and kind of right-hand man, Le Duc Ta, who was one of the Paris peace negotiators. And he, these guys and their supporters marginalized Ho Chi Minh and uh, General Ziap, people who might have settled for less than total victory over the South, created basically an opinion-squelching police state to make the North Vietnamese population fight that war and continue it no matter what the cost, including through horrible, you know, mistakes tactically like Tet, which was may have been a political success for them in the U.S., but what they took huge casualties uh, in 1968 in the Viet Cong and NVA forces, and uh, and it took them a couple years to recover. But it, it says something about their willpower motivated by spirit and tradition. They would not crack despite the pressure, uh, which is informative. And lastly, the other thing, like a lot of us, we like in this particular book, uh, Jason Palmer, our associate dean, put me on to, which is a book on the Marshall Plan by a man named Ben Steele. Mm. Uh, two N's on Ben, and Steele is S-T-E-I-L from the Council of Foreign Relations in New York on the Marshall Plan. And he makes the Marshall Plan be kind of the centerpiece of maybe the when the Cold War became inevitable or almost impossible to avoid. And so not really the Churchill Iron Curtain speech or the Mr. X telegram or the Truman Doctrine, but the Marshall Plan as kind of the central focal point and explain the Cold War through looking at that as maybe the most important event. And so I'm listening to that on audio uh, most of the way through it now. Great book. Interesting. I've got one for you. So I just finished a couple of weeks ago. I'm telling everybody about it. I told our associate dean, Colonel Palma, as well. So it's Jeff Lewis's 2020 commission mm-hmm. report on the, I forget what comes after that. But anyway, it's a, a, a everything up to August of this year is based in real world events. And then from August mm-hmm. of this year going forward is fictionalized on the basis of real world events. And it's a, a nuclear attack. Uh, North Korea ultimately attacks the United States um, on the on a basis of a fluke, you know, there was a, a passenger jet that gets a little, South Korean passenger jet gets a little mm-hmm. too close to the north, and, and the north shoots it down, and then this escalation of mm-hmm. events, diplomacy run awry, uh, miscommunication, misinterpreted signals, that leads to multiple mm-hmm. ICBMs being launched from North Korea 
and hitting the continental United States into the aftermath and recovery. Um, so it, it could be, it's fat, it is stomach churning in its mm. realism, but it is just fascinating. And, and I think could be useful for, for what yeah, you guys do it, in the spring. Exactly. It sounds like more of the same. Yeah. Or in uh, our colleague Tammy Schultz's uh, fiction. Exactly. Uh, yeah. In national security class, because this being a work of fiction would be very mm-hmm. relevant. So, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for coming sure. on the show. You can read more about McWar's use of case studies in the summer issue of Marine Corps History, which is available for free online. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at College. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.